Chapter Four, Parts B and C of Aces Up. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aces Up by Covington Clark. Chapter Four, Parts B and C. Part B. If one who stands less than five feet six and is freckled of face and red of hair can command hauteur and dignity, then it can be said that a few minutes later McGee, with hauteur and dignity, strode into the excited gabbling group that surrounded the burning German plane. For a moment none of them recognized him. With hands on hips, arms akimbo, he stood watching them. He was still just a little too mad to trust his tongue. Major Cowan was the first to notice him. Ah, Lieutenant McGee, I am... No, sir, I am Lieutenant McGee's ghost. McGee got his neck broken over there just now, trying to make a landing in the dark. Your ground crew were exceedingly helpful to him, Major. So nice of them to obey his signals so promptly. For once Cowan was at a disadvantage. Gad, man! Did you signal? Oh, yes. I waved my hand. Rather original idea, don't you think? Perhaps you weren't expecting me to come back. Frankly, Lieutenant, I wasn't. The look on Cowan's face was one of genuine admiration. You have done a courageous thing, Lieutenant, and I thought it foolhardy. I said as much to Lieutenant Larkin, and I apologize to you here in the presence of all these men who witnessed your courage. All the others thereupon surged around McGee, pumping his hand vigorously and clapping him on the back. McGee's anger faded. It was a thing that never stayed long with him. Is Larkin here? he asked. He was, Cowan answered. Came a few minutes after you took off. But when I refused him a ship, he got mad as a hornet, bawled out the light crew, and, and me, and then jumped back in his car and rode off rather tempestuous fellow. If he had stayed here, McGee said regretfully, my camel wouldn't now be standing over yonder on its nose with its undercarriage wiped off. He'd at least think of landing lights. He pushed his way through the crowd toward the burning embers of the twisted, broken, and charred plane. Pilot burned to a crisp, I suppose, he mused half aloud. Hampton, who was standing nearest, answered, no, the poor devil jumped. Landed over there by the road. They carried him over to the hospital tent. Not a, a whole bone in his body. His voice seemed choked. It's a, a fearful way to go. A sporting way, I would say, Siddons spoke up. Even in the last moment he rather cheated you, McGee. He escaped the flames anyhow. McGee looked at Siddons searchingly. In those cold gray eyes and in the half-taunting smile, there was none of the sympathy or natural normal emotion that had so choked Hampton's voice. He did not cheat me, Lieutenant Siddons, McGee said, his voice edged by his dislike of the man. I am only one of the small factors in this unfortunate game. Duty may be pursued without wanting to see others suffer. He was a brave man. I salute him. He turned to Cowan. Major Cowan, if your crew had attempted to extinguish these flames, we might have added a great deal to our knowledge of the progress the enemy is making. I could not recognize this plane in the air. I think it is a new type. By Jove, I never thought of it. 
McGee turned away to conceal an expression which he could not control, and as he did so he heard Yancey growl to Hampton. What a first-rate kitchen police in a home guard outfit that bimbo would make. As McGee walked back toward the hangar, Hampton and Siddons joined him. He felt Hampton give his elbow a congratulatory squeeze. Then Siddons said, Are you going over to have a look at your fallen adversary, Lieutenant? Oh, I say, Siddons, Hampton exclaimed, pained and surprised. I am going to make out my report, McGee answered simply. I wonder if you would like to give me a confirmation, Lieutenant Siddons. The question took Siddons off his feet. Why, er, uh, do you really want me to? Not especially. I just had a feeling that you would be pleased to have your name brought in it somehow. Several of the pilots followed McGee into the hut used for headquarters, but Siddons was not among them. Whatever his feelings, following the little instructor's pointed rebuke, he concealed them behind the cool indifference which marked all of his actions. At the door to headquarters, he turned down the gravel walk that ran in front of the row of huts used as quarters, and was soon lost to sight in the darkness. Part C McGee's report of his victory was characteristically laconic. Not a word did he employ that was not necessary to the report. No fuss, no feathers, no mock heroics. He had engaged an EA, enemy aircraft, and had sent it down in flames. Reading the report, one would find little enough to lift it out of the usual run of reports. Another meeting, another victory. No more, no less. Only in the last paragraph did he depart from his usual method of reporting. He wrote, My camel carried no ground flares. Twice signaled for landing lights with no response. Circled field. Entire personnel was gathered around burning EA and making no effort to extinguish fire, which by this time had nearly consumed plane. Forced to land in dark. Wiped out landing gear and shattered prop. Recommendation. That all commands advise ground crews that a live pilot is of more importance than a dead enemy. Having finished, he looked up at those who had followed him into headquarters. They were gathered in little groups, excitedly discussing the victory, which had actually been the first encounter they had witnessed. Fortunately, the victory had been on their side and they were considerably bucked. It seemed dead easy. Why, one man had gone aloft, bagged a plane, thwarted the plans of the enemy, and was back on the ground before you could tell about it. The war was looking up, and this instructor was no slouch. What this squadron wouldn't do to the enemy when an overcautious chief of air service said, let's go. Hearing their comments, McGee smiled. He knew, better than they, the great element of luck in his victory. The enemy, whose aim it had been to thoroughly frighten and subdue this green squadron, had succeeded instead in greatly increasing their confidence in themselves. The enemy had come to sow destruction. They had actually planted a seed that sprang instantly from the ground, bearing the bold and sturdy flower of self-confidence. Old dogs of war had been unleashed, and now a new pack was yelping on the trail. Where is Major Cowan? McGee asked. Over at the hospital tent, someone answered. Oh, I see. Perhaps it's just as well. He might not care to sign a confirmation after reading my recommendation. Which one of you will give me a confirmation? As one man, they surged forward. 
Just a minute, Red laughed. I said, which one? On second thought, I guess I'd better leave that to the C.O. First victory from his squadron, you know. His squadron nothing, Yancey growled. You don't belong to us, yet. No, but I'm here by assignment. I wouldn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, he chuckled. I'm afraid, though, that the last paragraph in this report has a sort of stinger in it. Let's see it, Hampton urged. McGee handed him the report. Hampton read it, whistled softly, and passed it to Yancey, who read quite as slowly as he talked. A look of disappointment spread over his face. It's a report, I reckon, he said slowly, but it's about as satisfying as a mess of potato chips would be to a hungry cow ant. It's as thin as skimmed milk. Say, who won this fight? You or the other fellow? I believe that report will give me the credit, McGee answered. Maybe. And that last paragraph will win somebody a ballin' out. Cowan will ask you to change that. Looks like inefficiency on somebody's part. Perhaps it is. It goes as it stands. After all, it goes through channels to the Royal Flying Corps, you know. I'm flying their ship and still under their orders. Well, when I get my first one, Yancey replied, believe me, they'll get the full details. And when they get through reading it, they'll think I'm the bimbo that invented flying. Those white-collared babies at headquarters have to get all their thrills second-hand. And this thing of yours is about as thrilling as the minutes of a Sunday school meeting. At that moment, Mullins, the peppery little operations officer, entered the room, his face a mass of wrinkling smiles. He walked over to the desk where McGee was seated, and from his pockets dumped out a double handful of articles, such as army men had learned to list under the broad heading souvenirs. It was a wristwatch, a German automatic pistol, a silver matchbox, a leather cigarette case, a belt buckle bearing the famous Gott Mittens, and a number of German paper marks. For a moment McGee sat staring at them, then slowly pushed his chair back from the table as he looked up at the smiling Mullins. What's this stuff? he asked. Souvenirs, of course, from your latest victory. Cowan and I decided to go over to the hospital and run through the chap's pockets to see if we could find anything that should be sent back to intelligence. Darned if Siddons wasn't there ahead of us, getting ready to fill his pockets with your souvenirs. I told him to wait until he bagged his own game. So there you are. Cups, belts, and badges. McGee gathered up the articles one by one and handed them back to Mullins. Take them back, he ordered, somewhat firmly. What? Mullins' jaw dropped. You don't want them? No. Not even one for luck? No. I've never carried anything that belonged to the other fellow for luck. Take them back. Yancey stepped forward, but he was still behind the soft-voiced Edward Fush, who said, I'll take them then. I'm not so high-minded about it. Tex Yancey pawed Fush aside as a bear might sweep aside an annoying puppy. Out of the way, little fellow. We'll divide these spoils of war, or we'll draw for em. Everybody to draw straws. Wait, McGee interposed himself between Mullins, Yancey, and the indignant Fouche. If you boys want souvenirs, go out and get them for yourself. 
Mullins told Siddons to wait until he bagged his own game. That goes here, too. Take him back, Mullins. A man of courage has a right to his own personal belongings, even after he is dead. Take them back and let them be buried with him. By the way, he turned back to the desk and picked up his report, I want a confirmation from Major Cowan. Where is he? Oh, I forgot to tell you, Mullins replied. He just jumped in a sidecar and went streaking off to win, looking like he thought the war had been won. And he took with him a nice little plum for intelligence. We found an order in that pilot's pocket that should have been left behind. Indeed? What was it? McGee asked. It was in German, of course, Mullins continued, and Cowan is as rotten in German as I am. But Siddons is a shark at it. Speaks half a dozen languages, you know. And... No, I didn't know, McGee answered cryptically. Yeah, reads it like English. That order was to the effect that their high command had received information that several air units were located in this sector, and ours, in particular, was placed to a T. It was an order for a bombing group to come over and give us an initiation. Highly important, highly important, Cowan said, and busted off for wing. To watch him, you'd think he had brought down the plane. It's strange, though, how those squareheads find out every move that is made on this side of the line. They have a wonderful spy system, McGee said. We learned that well enough up at the English front, where we had reason to feel sure of the loyalty of every soldier. But the leaks get through. Cowan was right. The order was highly important. The intelligence department do some clever work with the bits of information gathered from first one and then another. It's somewhat like piecing an old-fashioned pattern quilt. A piece here, a piece there, all seemingly unrelated, but in the end presenting a distinct pattern. Yes, it's important, I dare say. Mullins sighed heavily. Well, then, I suppose Cowan will come back here with a chest on him like a brigadier. Yancey laughed, picked up McGee's report, and handed it to Mullins. Read that, especially the last paragraph. When Cowan reads that, I can see his chest dropping like a toy balloon that meets up with a pin. I sure want to be hanging around when it's presented to him. This war has its compensations. Boys, make yourselves comfortable and await the coming of the mighty. It's worth staying up all night to see. End of chapter 4 Parts B and C